0: 2016 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Good morning. Afternoon. Yeah, so we're starting our team preview podcast series today, and I wasn't sure that we were going to do one, and then I posted in the Facebook group to kind of crowdsource whether people wanted one, and it turned out that the responses were like, several hundred to four (laughs) people wanted a team preview podcast series which i i wasn't sure about because the team preview podcast series is sort of the least effectively wild thing that we do all year we just we talk about the upcoming season and preview the teams and that's not all that distinctive there are lots of places that do that sort of thing hopefully we can ask some questions that are at least the type of questions you wouldn't hear other places. But people value it as a primer on the upcoming season. And we get to talk to lots of interesting people we wouldn't be able to talk to anyway. And lots of people find the podcast through those people and their audience. So I think overall it's a good thing, but we are going to be switching up the format this year. So for the last four years that we've done this, it's just been a one team per episode sort of thing and two segments per team. So Sam and I used to interview the person who wrote the BP annual essay and then someone, a sidekick, a BP intern or writer would interview someone else who covers that team in person usually. And Often that second segment overlap, just inevitably some of the same questions would repeat or some of the responses would repeat, certainly some of the information would. And since we are not doing this podcast daily anymore in order to actually wrap this thing up before the end of the season, we are going to cut that so it's just going to be us and we're going to do two teams per day going to use the fangraphs projections as a guide although they are still extremely early and not set in stone at all but we're just going to go from the top and the bottom at the same time so we'll talk about the team with the best projected record and the team with the worst projected record which is the dodgers and the padres so that's the the two teams we'll be talking about today and then we'll just gradually pull from the top and the bottom until we meet in the middle and that's how it's going to work Every year, I think I talk to Dave Cameron about
1: whether or not we should try to do some sort of team preview deal at Fangraphs, and we have something called the positional power rankings that have sort of taken the place of that, but I, I used to have this conversation every single year, and we could never come up with like a, a good or interesting way to do it, but it feels obligatory because it, you preview everything, any sort of big event, and I, I would think it's fair to say that the, the season cancels a (laughs) a big event and Uh we would always try to figure out like should there be some like distinctive format or some distinctive way that we talk about every team but i think what it comes down to is that even though you're never going to have like a team preview that goes viral so to speak there's a team preview is never going to be the most popular thing you do in a month or a year but at the end of the day people want to hear people they like discuss their favorite team almost Mm -hmm. no matter how. And then if, like, for example, we've talked about the Dodgers and Padres so far. Listeners don't know that we've already done that. But (laughs) we've already talked about the Dodgers and Padres. And if they are your favorite team, you don't care how they're discussed. You just want to hear about them. And if they're not their favorite team, especially in the Padres case, you probably just want to learn a little bit about them because you don't know much. And so you can't really go start from the perspective of, you know, everything about the 2016 to 2017 San Diego Padres. You just kind of discuss them. Openly, and I guess you just have to be satisfied with the idea that a team preview will never blow up, but they are useful. And from our perspective, it comes with the added bonus of they're extremely easy.
0: <laughs> You're really limiting us. I think we can get a viral episode. Which, okay, which team? Which team will be the biggest? Well, I guess which team pair is a better way to put it. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think one of the biggest episodes we ever did was a Cubs episode last year, which makes sense. You can't so. see, but my hands are on my cheeks in surprise. <laughs> yeah, so could be a, a Cubs episode, although, I don't know, maybe Cubs fans are all just satisfied now, and uh, they don't need anything more because everything worked out so well for them. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> No, I don't know. Maybe we'll just get a wacky off-the-wall guest who'll say some crazy stuff, and it'll catch on. So I don't know how the projections have changed, but so the Dodgers, popular team, paired with the Padres,
1: no one cares. I'm looking at the standings. Cubs, popular team, paired with the Brewers, no one cares. Red Sox, popular
0: team, paired with the Reds. We're not even supposed to discuss them on the podcast. <laughs> Which is sort of the point of this, in that <laughs> we'll we'll have episodes where someone cares about at least one of the teams on mm-hmm. each, each installment of this series, so well, that's so- the, the That's the good thing. Who's
1: the most popular of the bad teams? The Phillies are pretty popular. They're fifth from the bottom right now, but fifth from the top is the Houston Astros, who are a good team who don't have a big internet fan base. So we just can't can't win for
0: losing. Yeah. I don't know. I guess the Braves are interesting right now. The Brewers will be popular with you. And... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, maybe according to Fangraphs, the Royals and Orioles are, are bad teams, so maybe they count. So we're going to talk to Andy McCullough about the Dodgers today and Dennis Lynn about the Padres. Just quickly before we get to that bit of banter. Oh, and and by the way, we're going to be doing these on Mondays and Fridays, so we will still continue to do Wednesday email episodes and episodes where we'll just talk about other things before the email. So Keep your questions coming. We will still have a a break from the relentless previewing. But I wanted to just mention briefly a a thing I wrote today for The Ringer. It should be up now. And it's about how teams keep secrets or try to keep secrets or acknowledge that they can't keep secrets. And I was inspired to try to find out more about this by the hacking scandal, I guess, and the Chris Crea news of last week. Because... Correa, of course, tweeted his statement after the ruling came down, and he's still making claims that the Astros hacked first, and there is no known evidence that that was the case. But the interesting thing is that even if they didn't, even if they didn't do anything remotely illegal or unethical or anything— they obviously knew things that the Cardinals knew because Jeff Luna and Sig Madal went to the Astros after a combined 15 years with the Cardinals. And obviously a lot of the Cardinals secrets traveled with them. Doesn't mean that they applied them with the Astros or that they took anything they weren't supposed to. But they have memories and they remember the things they did with the Cardinals. And that sort of thing is happening constantly. And we saw it this offseason and the GMs that were hired came from other teams. Lots of stat people changed teams and director-level front office employees changed teams. And, of course, scouts are always changing teams. And I had no idea sort of how this works because it seems like it would be impossible to keep secrets. And so I surveyed lots of people, some low-level people, some high-level people, some scouts, some stat heads, and... And just ask them how they deal with this. And they had some pretty interesting responses, I thought. And uh, there it's sort of a a vague, nebulous area because no one's entirely sure what is allowed and what is not. Like everyone knows that what Korea did is not allowed by the law, if if only that. <laughs> but you know, just like, what can you take with you? What can you do? You can't forget what you learned. What if you wrote code for something and it's in your email account and you still have it? Can you then reproduce it? That kind of thing. And I got a, a bunch of varying responses. You know, some people said, like, well, if you're a scout, you can keep your own scouting reports because that's your own opinion about players. And other people said, no, you you shouldn't do that because it's something you produced for the team and you're covered by a, an NDA and anything you produced for the team is that team's property, essentially. But basically, the breakdown seems to be that there's a distinction between ideas and products. So if you know about a concept or a general philosophy, obviously, there's no way you can not take that with you. But if you produced something that is on paper or on a computer, it's code, it's whatever, or if you had access to that sort of thing then you're not supposed to take that with you. Although if you do, it's possible that no one will know because teams don't really talk to each other or know what other teams are doing. So it's hard to say even like what most people do. And of course, a lot of people are hired by their new teams with the thought that they can reproduce what they did with an old team. Like if you are a team that wants to have a better farm system, you'll hire the farm director of the team with the best farm system or something like that. That happens all the time. And so obviously you want them to do the same things that worked before for your new team.
1: If you want a really good farm system or at least player development, you just have to hire one Chris Correa as soon as he's out of jail. (laughs) Right, sure. I think... I don't know to what extent teams think of themselves as these really secretive organizations. I don't know how many teams think that they are either way ahead or way behind of, of other teams, but it seems like the only way you could really protect your own, I guess I'll call it intellectual property, is that you just pay your guys a lot to keep them around and then they're not incentivized to leave your organization. But the yeah. there are two problems with that. I guess one that uh, the league allows team employees to go seek out promotions with other clubs and no matter, well, maybe not no matter what you pay them, but most, many team employees at least want to get promoted I don't know what percentage right. of them have the dream of becoming a general manager but they're going to want to climb the ladder and this is not unique to baseball so your employees will still be incentivized to go change organizations and and secondly if you even if you can keep all your people around and you keep the same front office then what that means is you're not really bringing in people from other organizations which means you are then one team in a sea of 30 and you're not really getting that new information you get from hiring someone from somebody else and so Then I would feel like if you're the one team and you think that you have some really good ideas that you don't want to get out, but that means you're also not exposed to new ideas, then you are losing that sort of diversity of of thought, which Mm -hmm. is a a bigger general problem because there is a lack of diversity and thought in front offices for a very different reason. But (laughs) uh, yeah, I guess you... I didn't have a chance to read your article fully yet, but you talked to a number of people, and, and did any of them address that
0: concept? Yeah, some of them said also that you know the, the less scrutiny you have on a given idea, the more likely it is to not hold up to scrutiny if, if there were some. <laughs> so one of the solutions that some teams have is they will sort of Wall off employees into specific areas. So, you know, you hire someone to work on web development, and that person just works on web development and doesn't have access to certain reports or, you know, areas of the database. Or obviously, if you're hiring interns who might leave soon, you might not give them full access. And And that kind of thing, I think, can be good in that you restrict the secrets and the access to secrets. But it's also bad in that you get fewer people looking at each thing. There's a greater chance that someone's making a a mistake. And it can also be harmful to morale and kind of the the clubhouse chemistry of the front office because people feel like they're not fully involved and they're not seeing the whole picture and, and that sort of thing. So... A lot of people said that their teams do something like that. And a lot of people said that their teams shy away from doing something like that. So yeah, I think there's that. And I think the most consistent message I got, and I encourage people to go read it because it will make me look good, but also because there's a, it's a long thing and there are a lot of aspects that we aren't going to cover right now. But I think the most consistent response was probably that secrecy is sort of overrated like, Everyone is trying to protect their secrets and certainly no one wants to get hacked. But the difference that it makes is maybe less than we would assume, given the lengths that teams tend to go to not divulge things to the media. And a lot of people said that the public sphere is pretty close because there's so much data available to the public now and there are still lots of smart analysts out there doing interesting research. And so... The difference between inside and outside isn't all that great. I have also heard the opposite from some people that the gap between teams and the public is larger than it's ever been because they just have access to resources and data that we don't. But every team is just so into this stuff and kind of pursuing the the cutting edge now that there just isn't that much of a lag time. Like if a team is on to catcher framing before everyone else... They might have that advantage for a year or two, but that's kind of the outside before everyone else is onto it or, you mm-hmm. know, spin rate or stat or whatever it is like it's just traveling around the league so quickly, even if it's not because someone is getting hired and moving from team to team, but people on the Internet are writing about it and people at Fangraphs are doing research based on it and everyone is reading that and getting those ideas and so. It seems like there's just not all that great a difference. Like if you know what a team is doing in real time, like maybe Korea did, that could be an advantage. But even if like a year passes, a lot of the information that you would get, the team's evaluations of players or its stat work or whatever just wouldn't matter all that much anymore.
1: I wonder, something we've discussed, or at least it's been discussed, is the Dodgers have hired a bunch of other teams' high-level executives, and people have said, oh, maybe it's too many cooks in the kitchen or whatnot, but you figure every organization is picking up people who have worked in other organizations, but from the Dodgers' perspective, they they bring in Andrew Friedman, and you can assume he probably knew about everything that was going on in Tampa Bay. You bring in Farhan Zaidi, he probably knew everything that was going on in Oakland. You bring in Josh Burns, he knew... Probably everything that was going on and he's been in a few places. You bring in Alex Anthopoulos, of course he knew everything going on in Toronto. Jerry Hunziker they have on staff. He would have known everything that was going on at the Astros pre, I guess the current Astros, I don't remember his term, And, and so on. And every team gets to hire people from other organizations. But I wonder if one of the advantages of the Dodgers is they get to offer bigger money to like higher level people from other executives who would just know almost everything that their team was doing, or at least everything their team was doing that would have been successful. Now, granted, at least in terms of like injury prevention, Doggers, Dodgers don't seem to be ahead of the curve there, but you know, they've won the division four years in a row. They look like they're some sort of unstoppable present and future juggernaut, uh, aside from the Cubs also being an unstoppable present and future juggernaut. So I wonder if this is just one of the advantages, another one of the advantages they have of being an organization that has so much money to spend that they can just basically poach the people who know the most from other teams as opposed to just employees Mm -hmm. from other teams.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And even though the Cardinals' punishment was considered light by most people, certainly by most people I spoke to for this article, it was still the value that they lost amounted to millions of dollars, whether Mm -hmm. it was the, the literal millions of dollars or the draft picks that were worth some millions of dollars. And so that suggests that there is millions of dollars worth of value to a team's intellectual property and its knowledge and its information. And most front office executives who know those things do not cost millions of dollars. So (laughs) if you hire one of them for whatever one of them makes and you get access to millions of dollars worth of research or evaluations or whatever, you know, even if they're not bringing all the reports with them, a lot of it is inside their head, at least the valuable stuff. So you can kind of see that there would be some advantage to that. Yeah. And if uh, if you've ever wondered
1: where Aaron Seeley is, he also works for the Dodgers. So that's that's how deep it goes. So they got Aaron really? Seeley and Jose Vizcaino. What does Aaron Seeley do? Both Seeley and Jose Vizcaino are special assistants for player personnel. So I don't know what huh. that means, but they're included <laughs> under baseball operations about halfway down, ahead of about a third of the way down, ahead of all of the uh, developers and analysts in R&D. So... I don't know to what extent Aaron Seely has pull in the Dodgers organization, but he doesn't
0: have none. Alright, well speaking of the Dodgers organization, should we transition to preview time? Let's do it. Alright, so to begin our what, fifth annual, I think, effectively Wild Season preview series, we are talking first to a seasoned veteran of the Effectively Wild preview series and also to a seasoned veteran of Baseball Prospectus annual essays. And it's Andy McCullough, longtime guest of the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Andy. Hey, how are you guys doing? doing okay you sound so clear today we're talking to you via a different method and i can make out the words and you're not pressing any buttons with your face and this is great
2: have you guys heard of this new app they have called skype <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can call anyone on this thing
2: it's great i mean it's like it's like a phone on your uh on your computer i mean you know what will they think of next <laughs>
0: So you wrote about the Dodgers in your baseball prospectus essay, and you focused on the really strange starting rotation, which I wrote an article about late last season, too, because it was completely crazy, and it looked unlike any other winning team's starting rotation in that there were 15 guys in this rotation, and they kept cycling guys in and out all season. And not only did they win They didn't even really win despite the rotation, like the rotation was good somehow, despite the fact that there were so many people in it. Usually terrible teams use this many starters because they're bad and you keep having to try new ones or they get hurt and you have to bring in new ones. And a lot of Dodgers starters got hurt, but somehow it all worked and was effective and it seems like this is what the Dodgers want to do based on how you've, you've, you've covered the team and it, you've, it's not like this was a, an emergency backup plan and they were going to go get Zach Greinke and all the best starters and then that fell through and they decided to get all these older injury prone guys and Bud Norris. They actually wanted <laughs> to do this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think in an ideal world they would like to have five healthy, good starters. I think you know they they would prefer that, but obviously it's uh, it's very difficult to do that. You know, there used to be a stat. I think I don't know if it still holds true that like the team that wins the World Series generally is the one that gets the most like starts out of its five guys, uh, like has the least yeah. uh, amount of turnover. I don't know if that's I don't know how true that holds. But that's kind of a bit like a truism of baseball that if you can get You know, 30 starts from five guys, you're probably going to be a good team just because you're not going to have the the roster churn and stuff necessary. But I think the Dodgers are uniquely sort of set up roster wise to, you know, survive when things go awry with their rotation because the amount of depth they have and the amount of I mean this is something that they've, you know, since Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi came in a couple years ago, this is something they really harped on is they needed to build up the organizational depth. And so they made a lot of uh lower profile moves. Designed towards that and it allowed them to have the year that they did last year where um, they had essentially everything go wrong with their rotation, but they were still able to survive and and actually thrive. I mean, they were, they were a pretty good team. And uh, I think it's, um, you know, it's one of the more uh, interesting. Uh, under-the-radar things they are doing is sort of challenging, I guess, some of the, I don't know if the word is status quo, but just some of the conventional wisdom about how starting pitching works. And, uh, I, you know, I think they've sort of shown that starting pitching has, while it's really, really important, it's also probably never been less valuable than it is right now in terms of, like, paying for elite-level starting pitching, because you can find different ways to replicate that throughout the season, you know, with things like better defensive positioning, better leveraging of your bullpen, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. And I think they've shown like sort of like a, a hack around some of the the conventional wisdom of pitching that, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily doing it on purpose, but it's something that they're capable of doing when stuff goes awry.
1: Related to the pitching depth and how the Dodgers have been trying to build, I think when they when they traded Jose de Leon, Uh, recently and even when they brought him up last summer there's a lot of talk about Deleon he had these really outstanding minor league numbers we've been over this Uh, we've talked about them potentially trading him for months and then they finally did for a player similar to the player they wanted in any case so Deleon is gone which is interesting because it it seems like it's in theory a little bit of an overpay from that efficiency perspective but looking at Deleon in the high minors last year he threw like Almost 70% strikes, and he he allowed a contact rate of like 73%. Outstanding numbers. He's always ahead in the count, always missing bats. Brock Stewart in the high minors last year threw 71% strikes. Fantastic. Contact rate, 75% against. Tell me why Brock Stewart is not the Dodgers' third best starting pitcher right now for the season. Uh, Tell me about Brock Stewart.
2: They have Julio Urias, so that's why he's not number three. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean they I mean they really like Brock Stewart for sure. I mean, he's a guy who they probably valued as their best non-Urias um pr- pitching prospect. I mean, that was mm-hmm. one of the reasons that they were dangling uh, they're willing to part with De Leon is because they believed so much in Stewart and he's a guy who's mm-hmm. um probably going to play a pretty pretty big role on this club. I mean, you know, he didn't he didn't have a ton of, uh you know, action, I guess, last year he had, a, 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 I think, I'm trying to remember, he got his head kicked in a couple times, and then <laughs> he came up and had a nice start, I want to say, against the Cubs in, in, like, later in the year, but, you know, he didn't pitch a ton for them, but he's a guy who his minor league numbers were great, and, you know, <laughs> there was this thing going on during the year where De Leon was not on the 40-man yet, and so a lot of fans were saying, like, how come you're not calling up De Leon? how come you're not calling up De Leon? And the general argument that, you know, the Dodgers were uh, pushing back was, we think Stewart's just as good, and he's on the 40-man. So, yeah, I mean, Stewart's a a good pitcher. There's a lot to like there. And he's a guy who, you know, he's like a 6th or 7th round draft pick from a couple years ago, not a a ton of prospect type. But they have, you know, several guys who kind of fit this mold. I mean, I think Ross Stripling... Uh, has more value than, you know, uh, than I think the, the common perception is. I think the Dodgers value him, you know, fairly highly. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing where when you have all these sorts of guys, when you've got, you know, Stuart Stripling, you know, you've got uh, Alex Wood, uh, you know, you still theoretically have Hunjin Ru, you have, uh, you know, McCarthy Kasmir, whatever, you're able to part with one arm for a player like Forsyth, who is a, is a good player, not, you know, a superstar, but, this is a team that could win the world series next year and they had a hole at second base it's kind of a i i like i just think thought the trade was like fairly non-controversial it was pretty boring yeah. from my perspective but um, <laughs> you know i don't know
0: well is injury prevention playing any part in the way that they have designed this team do you think because it seemed like there was a time where everyone was writing articles about how the dodgers were doing all this innovative injury analysis and prevention and then they went out and they signed Brett Anderson Brendan McCarthy and all these people who were known for being injury risks but it seems like the guys that they've signed who were injury risks in the past have been injured a <laughs> been lot injured, yeah <laughs> so like I mean, I'm sure they're doing
2: cutting-edge work on injury prevention they did set a major league record last year for most guys on the DL yeah so, uh, maybe're they just were
1: increasing trying... their sample size of exactly. people to study. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah give me to the punch there yeah they're just trying to you know just get more data i mean yeah they're they're uh they're on the cutting edge of a lot of things i would say uh and i'm sure you know they're doing stuff in in that realm but uh i'm not i'm not exactly sure what the methodology is of signing i mean i guess it would generally be that you believe your training staff is really good and you can figure out how to keep these guys healthy but um that didn't necessarily you know work out last year so uh yeah i don't know i don't know if injury prevention is something they can really hang their hat on just yet
1: (laughs) I had something and then I forgot it. So if <laughs> instead of that, tell me You're doing uh, great Yasmani yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Grandall. So uh Travis Sochik wrote uh, wrote a post on Fangras not too long ago. He was defending a an MVP vote that he put in for Yasmani Grandall. And uh, you know, you're he hits pretty well for a catcher. He's been able to stay reasonably healthy of late. And we all know the outstanding pitch framing numbers, but there's been a little bit of uh, A little bit of research scraping the surface on maybe, maybe Grandol doesn't call such a great game. And I don't know what we're supposed to make of all of uh, those investigations because I don't know if they are valid at all or not. But as someone who spends a lot of time around or observing or analyzing Yasmani Grandal, where do you stand on the the thought of him potentially actually being an elite regular catcher versus someone who uh, is just kind of right in the wheelhouse for people like us to way overrate?
2: Yeah, I think he's more, uh, in, in, uh, you know, not to besmirch Ben's calling. He's more in, in, in use guys', uh, 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 wheelhouse of framing. Uh, you know, framing obviously is a valuable skill. And look, Grandal does a lot of good things. I mean, he's a good player, you know, like, don't get me wrong. You know, he hit like 27 homers last year, had like an eight. 10, 8, 15, OPS, like, you know, give me 25 of those guys. But there's definitely some flaws in the game. You know, the game calling has been something that they've been, uh, they've been working on with him to get a little bit better at. You know, he was definitely not as, you know, high level as AJ Ellis was, for example, when Ellis was on the club last year. You know, there's uh, some issues with pace sometimes and getting in in a rhythm with pitchers. He's not like, I mean, he's not, you know, he's not like a butcher back there, obviously. And he's got a big arm, but, you know, he's not a perfect defensive catcher. And then, you know, it's as valuable as Grandal is offensively. It is tough, you know, when you're like a 230, 340, 475 type hitter. Uh that's you know that's tough to rely on that sort of guy in clutch spots and I know mm-hmm. that's you know whatever some people are going to scoff when they hear this but you know there there's uh there there's value to his approach uh, you know to the way he hits he's kind of a boomer bus guy and but it's just offensively there's enough holes and there's enough times when he's able to be gotten out uh that I think that takes away some of his value.
1: Uh-huh. Well here's a fun fact. Last year in uh I was just curious, high leverage situations. He uh he came up forty six times. He walked a bunch. He actually hit three eighty seven, which I did not expect to be true. But uh yeah, yeah, I know. Eh, I know sand. what you're getting at. Yeah, it, it means nothing, right? It's forty 46- six plate appearance it, whatever. Yeah, uh,
2: I mean it's not even I guess I just I still it's tough to be super reliable as a hitter when you're batting 230. Even if right. you're even if you're really valuable. I just because you know, and even if he did come through in some of those spots, I'd be curious to see Uh, His handedness in some of those spots, Mm -hmm. because he's obviously a better hitter uh, from the left side—a ton more power from the left side. But yeah, it's just as a two thirty hitter, it's just it's tough to really you know have him as a guy who you can like pencil into your like third spot in the lineup. You know what I mean? He's a perfectly valuable you know number six, number seven hitter as a catcher. He's a good player. I mean, he's. He's a a really good player, like I said, but uh, I I don't think he's really an MVP caliber player. He doesn't think he's an MVP caliber player for what he's worth.
0: So Rich Hill came back, Uh, and I'm sure that you were (laughs) as happy as anyone other than Rich Hill, because you get to keep watching Rich Hill, who I I believe you're on record as saying was the best pitcher ever. <laughs>
2: the best pitcher I'd ever seen, yeah. <laughs> right,
0: which uh, obviously includes Clayton Kershaw, but he <laughs> he t- takes yeah. the second spot now. God. So you just wrote a, a big feature on him. So what more have you discovered about Rich Hill that makes him even more of a fascinating character than we all thought last year?
2: Rich Hill is the youngest of five siblings. He is the youngest, his old, his oldest brother is 19 years older than him. His youngest brother is 15 years older than him. (laughs) His dad was, uh, I think Joe Paterno's roommate at Brown. I'm trying (laughs) to think what else, uh, in order to learn how to be a left-hander, his, uh, one of his brothers tied his right hand behind his back. So he could uh, throw – basically you had like four – three teenage boys like experimenting with him in terms of like how to (laughs) like make a great athlete. Uh, Like his one brother taught him like grips and like his other one like worked on him with spin rate and like his other one like made him a lefty. So – Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's an interesting guy to talk to because he's very—he's pretty upfront about a lot of different things. You know, both baseball—you know, on the field and off the field. Very earnest guy. Just—it just—it's—it's a—it's a a more intriguing conversation, I think, than it is with a lot of players. He's just—he's kind of an open book about a lot of different things, and uh, he's thought—he's thought deeply about a lot of different things. And you know, just—I—I find his uh, approach to sort of getting through life to be really refreshing you know just trying to find enjoyment out of every single day and he kind of like it's it's it becomes almost like a broken record when you talk to him because he talks about it so much but it really is like a you know something he he tries to preach is just to just really like find things you're passionate about and uh, and really try and enjoy doing them and i think it's like you know on a on a low key level somewhat inspiring you know to you know to just sort of see that sort of drive in a person when they're going to be 37 and and you know they finally sort of figured out what they want to do with their life. Um, and it's something you just you don't run into a ton in this job.
0: The Dodgers haven't had the best luck signing pitchers to $48 million contracts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and there's still time for the Casimir deal. And, you know, Brandon McCarthy has been a good pitcher in his career. You know, he's had a, a fine career. He's just had a very strange Dodgers tenure getting TJ years ago and then Kind of catching the thing last year as he came back, he's kind of says that that's past him, but we'll see. Uh, and Kazmir, you know, had has been a, a good pitcher too. So, but yeah, the the Dodgers would prefer a slightly better result from Rich Hill.
1: If so, I think right now I haven't seen a lot of projections for for the season ahead. Uh, the only ones I know of, I think right now are like the first draft of the projections on Fangraphs, and if you look at them right now. They actually have the Dodgers as very, very slightly the top team in all of baseball ahead of last year's World Series champion and the seemingly invulnerable Chicago Cubs. So there is a certain amount of debate as if, you know, any of this matters, which I assure you it does not. But (laughs) if you had to take a position on whether the, the Dodgers are better or actually worse than the Cubs, I'm not going to allow you to say that they are exactly the same or as good. You have to say they are better or worse.
2: Where do you where do you fall as things stand right now? Yeah, I mean they're definitively worse. I mean, and like, I mean, okay, I think the Dodgers are 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 very clearly the second best team in the National League. I think mm-hmm. there is as good a chance as anyone that they could win the pennant in the National League, but it's hard to construct an argument in which the Cubs are worse than them. I guess just based on the dynamism of their lineup, depth of their starting pitching, they. Replace Chapman with Wade Davis. I know Wade Davis is uh is something of an injury risk, uh, but he's still Wade Davis. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't, like, can you make an argument that the Dodgers are better than the Cubs? I'd, I'd like to hear it, I guess.
1: I don't really want to make that argument on the internet because then the Cubs fans find you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I mean, if there's one thing I've learned these past couple of years is that crazy people do not go after other crazy people on the Internet. <laughs>
1: uh, I, I would think that the argument that the Dodgers would have is that they, they seem to have a lot of... Well, I guess the Cubs also have their amount of depth, but they don't have so much of like the pitching depth, the starting pitching depth. The the Dodgers, again, they could have a rotation that goes 10 or 15 quality pitchers deep. And then the Cubs, like right now, they're looking at Mike Montgomery maybe as a fifth fifth starter. And I'm not completely sold on Mike Montgomery myself. And then, you know, they're trying to spin the, the Brett Anderson wheel that you became familiar with. With last year, so who's to say? But I I do know that one thing the Cubs don't have that the Dodgers do have is Grant Dayton, who's awesome and completely unknown and underrated. So if you could talk a little bit about what a great segue, right? Right? Look at that! Look at that!
2: Grant Dayton, right now. And where did you find this guy? (laughs) Grant Dayton is an interesting player for sure. He was a guy who, like you said, you know when they say they're calling up Grant Dayton. I'm going on, you know, baseball reference and be like, "Oh, this guy is actually all right, you know, in the minors." Uh but you know, he came up and uh he's a left-hander, he's, you know, he's almost 30, you know, he's had never been in the majors, I don't think, before this past year and uh mm-hmm. he doesn't have like crazy good stuff from a, uh, you know, from like a uh, in terms of the radar gun, but he's got a fastball that kind of tough to pick up. It's got uh you know, and he's got a ton of spin on it. He's one of their he's one of their famous uh spin rate guys i guess you could say mm-hmm. and you know he was really good for them last year you know i think it was uh you know maybe like a 2 ERA or something in like 30 games uh, he's and coming into this year he's like definitely their number one left-hander in the bullpen and so yeah that's you know it's it's an it's another example of sort of the things they were talking about with depth it, it came both you know internally uh, and externally and you know Dayton is a guy that they traded for in 2015 for Chris Reed a deal that you know no one cared about and there was no reason to care about and then you look up and you know Grant Dayton is pitching really meaningful innings in September and October Um, you know he was not great in game five of the NLDS uh, but that led to Clayton Kershaw pitching in the ninth inning so it was great <laughs> for drama purposes so he's a great pitcher and a great dramatist
1: yeah it's like <laughs> Dayton is maybe like the the argument for why it does make sense to scout the stat line, so to speak, because mm-hmm. you can scout him to be like, OK, this guy has no history. He's not interesting. He's not a prospect. He's like you said, he's like almost 30 years old. He's 29 and, and two months right now in 11 days. So happy whatever that anniversary is for him. But at the end of the day, he in the high minors last year struck out 91 dudes and only walked 10 of them. So yeah. it's like you you can't you can't fake that. And so this is this is kind of like the Carson Sistuli wheelhouse of, you know, I don't have eyes on the guy, but he's doing really good by the stats. The Dodgers have a number of guys like this, like like Brock Stewart, where I guess they don't have De Leon anymore, but just another case of really outstanding high level numbers, with maybe not quite the stuff to go with it, but I don't think the Dodgers care as much as other teams would.
2: Yeah, and I think and I think that one of the things is that, you know, if you look at his stuff, his stuff does play. You just have mm-hmm. to look at it from a slightly different perspective of What's it saying on the radar gun? How much movement, you know, does the breaking ball have or whatever? It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at his spin rate. Look at how guys can't seem to pick up this fastball, even though it's only like 92, 93. Look at the numbers. There's something to like here. Now, you know, he's a guy who's going to have to prove it at every level the way he did on the way up, and he's going to have to prove it again you know, this year in the, mo- in the majors. And if he gets his head kicked in and, you know, isn't very good, you'll probably never see him again, but there's, <laughs> there's a chance that he could be a really good reliever for, you know, a couple years, you know, maybe longer than that. I mean, he was really good last year.
0: Getting one's head kicked in is a phrase <laughs> that you used in the annual <laughs> essay. Also, <laughs> And I don't, I'm really- not familiar <laughs> with this phrase. <laughs> you, I
2: mean, it's, you know, it's fairly like, <laughs> I mean, I get it. You've seen like, uh, like American history acts, right? It's like, yeah, you know, it's gross. <laughs> I don't know. All
0: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> it's like, I used to play football. So I have a lot of like, uh, like football terminology, I uh-huh. guess. Uh, <laughs> Bring the wood is another one. It's like the only <laughs> thing I like about football still is the fact that you can say, Bring the wood.
0: <laughs> what was the one? There was like one that you and Pedro were talking about on the podcast, but you couldn't say it on your podcast because.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, uh, cockshot. Uh, yeah, maybe that was it. Or like, uh, you know, like a fastball down the middle is, mm-hmm. is like, it's called dick high.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: That's good. You can't get that in game stories, though.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's factually accurate.
2: Yeah. You could maybe bracket it and write like penis.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, should I ask about Puig? I I guess I feel like I should maybe ask about Puig. I don't know. Obligatory Puig question? Yeah, go for it. Uh, Casiel Puig is still on this team. (laughs) Will he continue to be on this team? Will he be good for this team? Man, I didn't know I was calling into Doug (laughs) Jockey. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so Puig is a. It's it's complicated, I guess. He's never been, I guess, less relied upon in the past like three or four years like he's never been less of a focal point on this team than he is going into twenty sixteen, if that makes yeah. sense. I think obviously the book is out on him scouting wise. He's been basically figured out by right-handed pitchers and in a not particularly complicated fashion. It's just hard in, soft away. It's like a really Really simple pattern that uh, he can't seem to solve. You know, he struggles to hit fastballs. He was pretty useful in September after he came up from the minors last year, but he was basically only facing lefties. I want to say he had like a 900 OPS or something like that. But again, it was only facing lefties and still really struggling to hit high end velocity, which is kind of strange because that used to be what he did really well. Um the team has, uh, for the second year in a row, told him to slim down somewhat. And, uh, you know, based on just like seeing him a couple times uh, for like FanFest and he was at something at like a Coffee Bean uh, in Beverly Hills or something, he looks like notably slimmer. I don't know if that necessarily is going to make him a better baseball player. Uh, you know, there's obviously different arguments about how weight yo-yoing can affect you. But, you know, like, I don't know if him losing weight is going to help him recover the fast twitch muscles he had when he was 22, 23. And, like, when you talk to people around the game who have seen him then and seen him now, he does not look like the same player uh, athletically. But, you know, if he's capable of recapturing that form, I mean, he's the starting right fielder for them. And he could be, you know, a really useful player. And he would not be needed to hit in the second or third spot in the lineup. He could just, you know, bat seventh or sixth or eighth or whatever and just whatever he does is almost like gravy, you know, because the lineup is going to be powered by Seeger and Turner and Gonzalez and Forsythe. You know, those guys are going to be sort of the primary generators. And he can just be in that, you know, the back half of the lineup with Peterson and Grandal and where everything he gives you is, is a bonus, you know, if if the defense is still good. So they have a crowded outfield. They've got him. They've got Andre Ethier. They have Scottland Syke. They have the living legend Andrew Tolls. You know they still have Trace Thompson, even though he's coming back from like a broken back. That's it's unclear what uh, what his readiness is going to be for opening day. So you know if Puig hits, he'll get at bats. But you know there's a lot of other guys, uh, especially left-handed sticks, who are probably going to be taking at bats away from him uh, against right-handed pitchers. And you know if he's a fourth outfielder, I think. That's a useful player. It's just a matter of whether he can be useful for an entire season as a platoon player. You know, he's had issues before in terms of, you know, like, for example, last year he was given the day off, and they wanted him to come in and pinch hit later, and he had never stretched all day, hadn't taken BP, hadn't done anything to be ready for the game, and so, like, he, I think he, like, popped a hammy or something like that, like, running down the first baseline. And it's just, during the course of a full season, if he can maintain the focus necessary to avoid stuff like that. Uh, he can be a fairly useful player, but it's unclear. I mean, he's never done it, you know, so until he does it, it's hard to say, that he will be able to do it, if that makes
0: sense. And I guess, lastly, maybe you don't know the answer to this yet because pitchers and catchers haven't reported and beat writers haven't reported, but do you know what the plan is for Orias this year? Or how many innings he'll be pitching or what role he'll be pitching in?
2: I think uh, he threw like about 120 last year, so he'll probably be around 150 to 160. If it gets to be more than Forty in uh, a jump, uh, his agent will be displeased, and that'll be an issue. I would think that the most likely scenario is you just leave him at extended spring training for like a month and bring him up in May. It doesn't – unless like six guys get hurt in spring training, they have so much pitching depth you know they've got like literally 10 guys uh who could start for them i think if you count like trevor oaks you know um who's probably a better pitcher than you know mike bolsinger who like might have been their fifth starter last year you know so <laughs> uh it just doesn't make a ton of sense To have Urias in the rotation from day one. And then, well, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know what the science is on it because, you know, I've asked Dodgers people about this and they kind of hem and haw on it because, I mean, there might be a school of thought that giving him like two week breaks in the middle of the season is better for him. I don't necessarily know than it would be to just run him for 160 innings straight. So you kind of have to look at it. So I imagine, uh, but I don't know. It just seems like, the most likely scenario is you leave him an extended spring otherwise it's a you know every fifth day you got to figure out if he's going to be in the rotation if he needs a day off you know this way you just give him an extended break and then you can use him well uh, now that i'm thinking i mean one of the issues they had with him last year is he had never really gone every fifth day before so he wasn't necessarily physically built up for it so maybe you bring him in at the beginning of the year and, you know, see how he handles going every fifth day. Then you shut him down for a little bit. Then you start him. Out. I don't, you know, who the fuck knows? <laughs> you know, I used to cover the Royals and they just started the same five pitchers and they ran out the same nine hitters every day. And it was really simple. And <laughs> Dodgers are like the exact opposite. Like nothing they do is as simple. And it, I mean, what, like what they're doing works. It's just like really tedious to cover sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah. Really making it hard on the beat writers out there. Speaking of tedious to cover, speaking
1: of tedious to cover, we haven't even talked about Pedro Baez yet.
2: (laughs) I have a a hot take. Uh, Pedro Baez is great because if you are in the seventh inning of a baseball game, there is a good chance as a writer at that game that the narrative of your story has already been ironed into place and you would like to start fashioning it so it can be finished. Uh, for the first edition of the newspaper, and there is nothing better than Pedro Baez coming in and taking 20 minutes to get three outs, so long as he doesn't blow the game. Take as long as you want, Pedro, because that gives me plenty of time to write, and uh, I have nothing bad to say about Pedro Baez.
0: (laughs) All right. We've always ended these interviews with wind total predictions, and I'm sure no one has ever learned anything from them. And uh, I'm sure for the most part, they have not turned out to be any more correct than the projections anyone can go look at. But people still seem to like them. Does John Chenier keep a record of these? I don't think John does, but Darius Austin, who writes for Banished to the Pen, the site started by listeners of Effectively Wild, he does an annual post every spring where he compiles all the predictions and he compares them to the projections and then he does a retrospective thing at the end of the season just to see how it worked out. So I guess just for the sake of Darius Austin and his content production, we should continue to ask people for predictions. So you want to give us one? Have
2: you? Have you ever thought about just how strange it is that there's a website talking about your podcast?
0: <laughs> yeah, there was a initially there was a series where they like did a post on every episode, and <laughs> I think they got about twenty in before they gave up on that, which was probably smart. But yeah, it's it's weird and and gratifying. It's a good site. No, it's great. Yeah, yeah
2: I'm all for uh, community and stuff. It's just I was thinking about like if someone made a website about like me and Pedro's podcast where they like. <laughs> Discuss the things we discussed <laughs> on the podcast. I would just feel, I would feel like probably the internet had gone too far. I guess. Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, how many Dodgers wins? uh Ninety four. All right. I don't know. Does that seem about right? What does FanGraphs have them winning? Like hundred and ten or something? <laughs> I think it's almost exactly it's actually- that. Right.
1: It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it is. It's exactly uh 100. Yeah, 110. It says right there. It's got a, it's got
2: 110. The Rays are winning 92. Uh, hold on, let me go. Let me figure out the Fangraphs ones. They got the Rays are winning 92 and winning their fourth consecutive World Series. Royals and Orioles, 67 the Orioles are wins. Winning, yeah, the Orioles are winning 62 games. Uh, the Royals you know, it's are, are set to the minors completely. Uh,
1: Yeah, it looks like Fangraphs just has the Rockies contracted. It's the weirdest thing, but I guess they just... That's for the fact.
2: At what point do you think the Rockies should be contracted?
1: I'm not convinced that they don't think that they already have been.
2: Someone should, uh, yeah. The Rockies are—they're uh, the mayor's of trouble city. I would say. Uh, <laughs> although I like that's uh what's the one guy they have? Uh, Chatwood. I like him. He, uh, he yeah. or No, and uh, John Gray. John Gray. John Gray. Is, yeah. He's a good player.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their pitching is coming. Yeah, those, yeah. Those guys have been getting their heads kicked in for years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you should it's a really good phrase you know it's just what a, like you say what happened when they brought the the rookie and oh he got his head kicked in and they sent him back to oklahoma city it's so
0: graphic i'm picturing I, like he, just yeah <laughs>
2: What, how do, what would, how do you, do you have a favorite metaphor for like a, a, a bludgeoning on the mound or something like that?
0: I don't have a go to phrase, I don't think. Yeah. But.
2: It's also a wrestling thing uh, mm. that they, uh, I don't know who uh, they started it for. But when uh, I know they did this for uh, when Daniel Bryan was Bryan Danielson, uh, <laughs> which is his actual name. Yeah. Uh, when he was at, uh, I know when he was in Ring of Honor, the fans would chant, You're going to get your effing head kicked in at his opponent. Uh, and it was uh, very menacing. Uh, and then Daniel Bryan would come out who's like five foot nine, and then he would actually kick them.
0: And then they just shortened <laughs> that to yes yeah hey
2: are you, uh, are you sad about shinsuke dropping the title
0: i don't know now that my heart is so full for nakashima he's kind of crowded out nakamura but i have been a fan since his nxt debut <laughs> all right i guess we can Stop, guys because we can end on a wrestling note <laughs> as we have done before when we've had you on this podcast uh people can find andy as they know on twitter at mccullough times and at the la times Thanks, Andy.
2: Thanks, guys. Have a good one.
0: You too. And we'll be right back with Dennis Lynn to talk Padres. (laughs) Don't get scared. Alright, so after starting with the team with the best, extremely preliminary, not very dependable, subject to change, <laughs> fangress projections for 2017, we are now moving on to the team with the worst. All of those words I just said. And to talk about that team, the San Diego Padres, we are talking to the excellent Padres beat writer for the San Diego Union-Tribune, Dennis Lynn. Hey, Dennis. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, happy to have you on. So... Does that feel fair to you, to have the Padres be the the worst team in baseball?
3: Uh, I haven't looked uh, all around the league, but uh, I think uh, considering that their payroll might be something like $57, $58 million this year, and considering that they traded away uh, basically half a roster last summer, uh, I think that would most likely be accurate.
1: If you could maybe... Decide which is more indicative of the state of the Padres rotation, where I think uh, people are generally aware that the Padres have a little bit of some interesting stuff going on on the position player side, but then it's the pitching side that's uh, depleted. What what seems worse, that they've given identical $1.75 million contracts to Trevor Cahill, Julius Jacin, and Clayton Richard? all because they could fit in the rotation, or the fact that there are continuing rumors that they are interested in Jared Weaver?
3: <laughs> uh, well, would it change things if they signed Jared Weaver for one point seven million?
1: I mean, it would for us, <laughs> just from a writing perspective, out of curiosity. But for the team, my God.
3: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> an interesting question. Um, I, I, th- I think uh, the fact that Jared Weaver throws 83 miles an hour, and they're interested in having him, sort of lead the rotation is indicative of, you know, a good thing. They they recognize where they are. They uh, they know that Jared Weaver is not going to, you know, most likely bring a lot of people to the seats, but uh, they, they want to, I guess it's a uh, cliche, but establish a culture of uh, accountability. These, uh, these younger guys, the position players especially, doing things the right way. So uh, the 1.75, those blanket contracts, they've been uh, very, uh, I guess, restrained and who they're going after this offseason. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they want to save as much money as they can to spend on international players and uh, more upside, higher upside, younger players. So that's that's a sound strategy. In the meantime, they're going to take their lumps at the major league level. So I think to, to answer your question, uh, I think um, <laughs> the, the 1.75 is worse. But uh, if you really look at it, it's, it should be something that shows that they're trying to take the smart approach to, uh, to building this team.
0: So last time I talked to you on my other baseball podcast, we were discussing A.J. Peller's maybe less scrupulous aspects and how he maybe held back information from medical reports and was suspended for that. And maybe we can talk about that again. But I, I'm curious about kind of his just general operating philosophy because I talked on this podcast some time ago after the, the Diamondbacks and the Twins hired their new front offices this winter and it seemed like every team had fully embraced sort of the, the stat inclined front office and there definitely wasn't like a, a laggard or there wasn't. Any team that outright rejected new ways of thinking about baseball, like, say, the the outgoing Diamondbacks regime did. But I think I was talking to at the time Sam Miller floated the idea that maybe the, the Padres are the team that I don't know how to put it. Obviously, they're not coming out and saying we don't use stats, and they do have people in the front office who are devoted to, to quantitative analysis. But is Preller maybe one of the more old school gms left in the game now that all the old school gms are gone he, he's definitely old
3: school from a scouting sense that that's a lot of his background but he's also another one of those ivy league educated uh, younger gms the the newer mold who uh, sometimes uh, maybe some of the uh more veteran executives in the game kind of wrestle at. just a, a young guy with i guess uh less experience in his background although he's pretty much been in baseball since he got out of Cornell. So he is, he is old school from, from a scouting perspective. Uh, he learned under uh, Don Welkie in uh, L.A. with the Dodgers. Uh, but I, I don't think he's by any means uh, disinclined to use numbers and analytics. Uh, they've got some uh, very good people that department in the front office and I think it's a combination of both but if you're going to ask me oh what kind of guy is he really he's a he's a scouting guy to me Um, I don't think he uh, puts numbers first and foremost I I just think uh, he's got other people in his front office to do that so the Padres overall I would say they they actually lean toward you know being a little more cutting edge because they've got Andy Green as their manager who uh, is very uh, into shifts and advanced metrics and uh, looking at those numbers. So I think overall, they do kind of skew toward that side of the ledger.
1: Bouncing around just a little bit from the front office, I think if there was one thing that really got Padres fans excited, if that's a, a thing that happened last year, was that they were at least far and away the best base running team in all of baseball. They were one of the best base running teams we have on recent record for whatever it's worth. The numbers that fan say that the Padres base running runs were 25 above average, which gave them a a significant gap between them and second place. So the Padres ran the bases really well last year. It was a priority of theirs coming into the year. And you look at the roster that they had and like Will Myers came out of nowhere to steal 28 bags. There was Ryan Schimpf was a good base runner, John Jay, Travis Jankowski, Adam Rosales, just almost everyone in the lineup was running aggressively. And I wonder, clearly the team's philosophy isn't going to change that much going into next year. It's still a, a similar rebuilding kind of year. But do you think that this is the kind of skill that's going to be more difficult for them to maybe thrust upon opponents. Do you think teams are going to be a little more prepared now that they've seen what the Padres have done for a year on the bases?
3: Yeah, I suppose that's possible. Uh, seeing, like you said, what uh, what kind of um, you know base running results they got last year, uh, I do think by the same token, they, they could have been more prepared in the second half. The Padres kept running and they were pretty successful still. Um, but. Uh, yeah, they, they should be a little more prepared to to see this team run, especially a guy like Will Myers, who maybe teams uh, didn't think would steal 28 bags and did. Mm-hmm. So I think from that perspective, they'll they'll be maybe a little more challenged to for so the same results. But uh, it was interesting. Uh, Tarek Brock, the first base coach uh, last season, who was uh, responsible for kind of the base running efforts, uh, uh, he was actually fired after the season. And Andy Green said, uh, we think we can actually be even better on the base pass so that's 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 interesting see what they uh they do in that department this year so i think uh he's always the kind of guy andy green uh that wants to push the envelope so if they can uh take an extra base uh or uh you know steal third he's always going to Probably give a green light. So I think uh, they, they do have room for improvement, surprisingly, in that <laughs> department. And that might be the only one of the only paths for them to be interesting from a, I guess, team <laughs> perspective is on the position player side and uh, trying to get that extra bag.
0: Well, there's also the Christian Bethencourt perspective, which is <laughs> very interesting to me. So can we talk about that? What have you heard yeah. about his uh, Winter League transformation into a uh, full fledged two way player?
3: Unfortunately, his. His debut in the Panamanian Winter League was uh, delayed about, I think, a month, or even a little more than that, because the Panamanian Winter League isn't always uh, the most reliable for starting on time, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Not a lot written about it, not a lot of video, although there have been little snippets of him uh, throwing at the mound, and he's up to, I think, 97. Uh, He's working on the breaking pitch, but that started in uh, January, so come uh, spring training we're not sure how uh, how ready he's going to be but uh the reports are he's in a much better place than he was when he was uh debuting on the mound in seattle and that uh terrible stir for james shields uh last may where he was just uh just kind of heaving it up there with no mechanics throwing 96 98 uh throwing ethos pitches i don't think you'll see the ethos pitch anymore but uh if if they can get him going from a pitching side and uh You can play a little left field uh, catch on a few days and kind of just do a little bit of everything. That's going to give them a lot of roster flexibility, especially if they're trying to carry more than uh, one or two uh, Rule 5 guys in the roster. So, uh, yeah, this would be maybe my favorite story of the year if it works out. Well,
1: I guess Bettengort might end up in the bullpen, but I think my favorite member of the bullpen potential picture right now is Carter Caps, who the Padres very quietly picked up in that sort of catastrophic, but maybe not so catastrophic. I don't know how to describe it. That controversial move that they made with the Marlins last year. And so they got caps and people didn't maybe really notice because he didn't pitch all last year. But what is an update? Because the last time that Carter Caps pitched in the major leagues, and I think people are familiar with what his delivery causes his body to do but the last time he pitched in the major leagues he struck out literally half of the batters that he faced that is one of those things that if you can do it healthy that's amazing and it gives the Padres a hell of an asset or or a trade resource so what's going on with Carter Caps?
3: the the most recent update on him is he's 100% he at least feels like he's 100% so he shouldn't have many up, uh, limitations going with the spring training that said they'll probably be uh a little bit cautious with the guy. He's still, uh, I think, about eleven months re- removed from his Tommy John surgery, so maybe he's a little ahead of schedule, and you don't want to you don't want to push him too hard. So he might uh, he might be eased into games, uh, maybe in the second half of spring training, or maybe not, because uh, according to him, he feels really good. So if he can come back, you're right that that trade that uh, you know initially looked kind of odd uh, for the Padres, or actually it looked it looked pretty good for the Padres even before the. <laughs> Colin Ray, uh, Luis Castillo, Fiasco. This will be an even better trade for the Padres because he's a potential option at closer for the Mowers of the uh, incumbents, but uh, he didn't have the best results last year. He's a little bit shaky, got better toward the end. So uh, it'll be interesting to see in spring training how far along Carter Caps is and how much pressure he puts on a guy like Brandon Mauer for that closer
0: spot. Do you think that ultimately we'll look back at Preller's tenure and sort of the first year will just be completely different from the rest of it and we'll just look at that as a, a totally separate thing that he just got out of his system and, <laughs> and then he settled into the kind of rebuilding from the farm and amateur signings and international signings and the sort of thing that we all expected in aging preler gm tenure to look like
3: yeah i think it's quite possible i, I, I do believe it's important to remember he wasn't completely alone in uh, that endeavor in 2015 uh, or right before the 2015 season uh, he had a uh, supportive ownership maybe a little maybe a little bit of the urging of ownership to uh, you know make an aggressive push uh, with the understanding that they could uh, trade some of these guys if it didn't work out Obviously, it went a lot more uh, disastrously than than they expected, and it really set them back at least a year or two in their timeline of uh, reaching contention. But uh, I think they learned their lesson that there are really many shortcuts you can take uh, in this game, even if – if you got a lot of resources you want to pour into the free agent market or uh, the trade market or uh, just uh, being aggressive at the major league level. It doesn't really work out for smaller markets like San Diego. So, uh, what they're doing right now is stockpiling assets. Doesn't matter if there's overlap in the farm system. A lot of these guys are, you know, 19, 18 years old, or in the case of the international guys, even younger. So, uh, you know, once those guys uh, get to uh, a level where they can compete for a major league spot, I think uh, that's the bulk of where their resources are going to be uh, trained is uh, just replenishing that farm system and then uh, maybe making a finishing move or two at the major league level. And that kind of fits uh, what we expected out of AJ probably coming into this job.
1: In terms of, I guess, sort of the Padres operating philosophy, I'm sure you've gotten this question every single day since the news broke, but do you think there is any, or what would be the significance in your estimation of the Padres now being, aside from the San Diego Gulls, the only show in town?
3: (laughs) That's a, that's a great question. I think we'll find out the answer as this year goes along a little more. Um, I do think from the business side of the game, people might overrate a little bit how much uh, the Chargers' absence means to the Padres, just because uh, again, this is a smaller media market, and uh, there's not a you know a huge, uh, huge uh, wealth of I guess sponsorships to go around in San Diego. Maybe uh, maybe they'll gain a little from that perspective, but uh, it does. Uh, it is an interesting. Uh, kind of spotlight on them because uh you've argue that it gives them either more or less incentive to uh, you know not try because they're the only <laughs> game in town so they can either just kind of sit back and you know twiddle their thumbs or they can really seize the spotlight and go for it but i think uh, it doesn't really change their plan on how they uh attack the baseball side of it they're still going to build through the farm system which they've been doing for the Last year or so, so yeah, it'll be interesting. I I, I think uh, the uh, the Chargers fans who lost their team to uh, L.A., I A. I don't know how many more of those uh, those fans you'll uh, you'll bring to peco with the uh, the likes of uh, I guess Trevor Cahill and Yoli Chatin in the <laughs> rotation. So a little better, and they better hope the Manny Margot and Hunter Renfro really turn into you know all stars, stud players.
1: Maybe they think that Jared Weaver holds a special appeal to current <laughs> football fans.
3: Yeah, they could have just drafted him. but uh, I guess you can't really blame this ownership group or this front office uh, for that because that was a, long time
1: ago one player I did really I'm sorry to cut you off Ben but when <laughs> <that's a laughs> one kid, player I did really want to ask about that I'd forgotten is a uh, Bethancourt. you know he could be a sort of utility player and reliever but the guy in front of him at catcher at least Austin Hedges he seemed like he was uh, that's my guy.
0: yeah twerk perfect <laughs> then we can, we can ask co-ask yeah, this question we can alternate words we'll just talk over each other <laughs>
1: uh a few years ago Austin Hedges offensively it looked like he was a disaster outstanding defender uh just great that was why he was talked up it's why he was a prospect uh, but he couldn't really hit and then all of a sudden last year it looked like he could hit and not only a little bit he could hit for power and he he seemed at least statistically, to turn into a extremely interesting young catcher. So, what what is going on with Austin Hedges, and how do you see his twenty seventeen playing out? As it looks like a regular major league catcher for the first time.
3: Yeah, that'll be another uh, guy along with uh, Ted who'll be really interesting to follow because uh, he's been uh, a guy who's always been you know heralded for his defensive skills, his uh, defensive acumen, and he's already shown at the major league level in a small sample size that he can be. Um, Pretty quickly, I think one of the elite catchers on the defensive side in the game. Uh, the offense is a little a little more complicated because even though he did have those big numbers uh, last year, that was coming in uh, El Paso, which is mm-hmm. basically like hitting on the moon for for a lot of guys, <laughs> uh, including Hunter Renfro. Uh, although Hunter did show some uh, some some of that translating in, in uh, you know, another small sample size last last September, so I think um, this will give us a. Uh, much better barometer of who he is, Austin Hedges. Who he is as an offensive player. Um, he still hasn't really gotten that chance at the major league level. Even though in 2015 he was up, he uh, didn't really play very much behind uh, behind Derek Norris, and if they hadn't brought him up. He'd still be a prospect technically. So we'll uh, we'll find out, I guess, for the next few months whether you can really uh, maybe let's say hit 250 and then provide good glove defense on the uh, defensive side. So I think if he does that, he'll be uh, pretty close to. You know, a first division catcher, which, you know, this isn't a first division team, but uh, that'd be something to be excited about, I guess.
0: Is there anyone on the roster who has sort of Ryan Schimpf surprise (laughs) potential? (laughs) Maybe it's Ryan Schimpf again, still still being good. I don't know. But is there anyone who's maybe not that well known a name who's in the majors or close to the majors or has a line on a spot that you think could end up being interesting?
3: Alex Dickerson, who debuted last season in the majors, uh, along with. uh, Travis Shankowski, I think Travis Shankowski gets a little more play out there because uh, his tools are obvious. He's one of the fastest guys in baseball. He might be a better defender than uh, Manny Margot. Actually, some scouts think he's a better defender. So, uh, getting back to Alex Dickerson, he's another left-handed bat, some good power. He uh, showed pretty well in his uh, rookie season. He was uh, hampered most of the season by uh, his nagging hip injury. So I think, uh, given a full season and they'll have to maybe spread out the bats a little, uh, around the, around the outfield, actually, because they've got basically four young guys who can, uh, make a legitimate case to be playing a lot. Um, he can, uh, he can maybe hit 20 plus home runs from the left side. And that's, that's pretty useful, especially if, uh, you can get an uh, average defense from him. That's always been kind of his question is, uh, the defensive side, he's not a plus runner, uh, he's actually below average in that department. So if he can, uh, make up for it with his bat. I think uh you could have another uh twenty home run season out of nowhere, kinda of like Ryan Schimpf did. Although he's uh he's always been a little more of a more highly regarded prospect than Ryan Schimpf and he's uh he's a local guy from San Diego, so that'd be a nice storyline if he can uh Kind of get the back going and uh, be average on defense at least.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. Going over this list, the Pachres position players, they're of far greater interest to me now than they were even 20 minutes ago, just, just <laughs> from talking to you. Like, I never, I didn't even pay attention to who Alex Dickerson was. There have been a few Dickersons who have floated around the major leagues, and none of them were particularly interesting, but this is a guy who just eyeballing it, and maybe this speaks to the whole AAA environment that you discussed with Hedges earlier, but Alex Dickerson in AAA slugged 6'22, and I had absolutely no idea. So, that's a hell of a uh, hell of a season for him to split between AAA and the majors and actually hit for legitimate power. But maybe a, a better question, because that wasn't a question, is what in the hell is a Franchi Cordero?
3: <laughs> That's a former shortstop turned center fielder who uh, is actually still a prospect. He's actually Franchi Cordero has actually made some strides since he made that position change. Uh, a lot of errors uh, when he was still at shortstop. Probably grew out of it. His frame grew out of it. Now he can. Uh, kind of run a little bit. He can uh, play all three outfield positions. Uh, I think he might be looking at a fourth outfielder in the major leagues, but uh, that's still something considering um, he was kind of a sales project at shortstop. So he's still, I think, only uh, 22 or so. So um, it's another prospect to add to their uh, incredibly deep farm system, although I don't think he's uh, anywhere close to the top 10.
0: Yeah, just scanning the depth chart here, I guess the one thing you can say about the Padres is that they are very young. I haven't looked at the Projected team ages or anything, but there is almost no one who's not in his 20s. It's like Clayton Richard and maybe one person in the bullpen just turned 30, but that is about it, which is uh, not always a good thing for a team's immediate prospects, but usually at least means that there are better things ahead.
3: Yeah, yeah, Will Myers would be a veteran on this team, or he will be. He is a veteran on this team at 26. I just signed a big contract and he still likes eating at Chick-fil-A and Chipotle pretty much uh, every day. So, this is uh, where this team is at. And, um, yeah. I guess uh, we'll see if he has those uh, veteran, pretty veteran qualities inside of him as we uh, progress through his contract.
0: Are you suggesting that Chick fil A and Chipotle are places (laughs) people grow out of?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think so, but uh, maybe not. Um, That's fair. I mean, the guy has $83 million and he's still eating there, so. Uh, I, I I'll change my mind.
1: I understand the circumstances here, but it it seems to age. I think all of us in a hurry. When just a few years ago we were talking about Will Myers as like the prospect that the Royals shouldn't have traded, and now he's the veteran leader of the San Diego Padres. This
0: is this is actually psychologically troubling. <laughs> and just I guess lastly, can you? Describe what Green is like kind of tactically for people who haven't watched a whole lot of Padres games. Like we know that he seems to be pretty progressive and he works well with the front office and that sort of thing. But just as an in-game manager, is there anything that stood out from his first year? or Did he evolve at all as the season went along?
3: I think he was aggressive from the start, uh, and that was really the theme, uh, whether it was uh, on the base paths or shifting. The extra middle of the pack and shifting, I think uh, he uh, he made it a point at the end of the season to say uh, one of the areas we can really improve is infield defense, and they didn't, uh, most for most of the season, maybe didn't have the personnel to maybe uh, shift as much as he wanted. But uh, I think uh, when you uh, look at what he did uh, with base running, with shifting, with the bullpen he's pretty forward thinking uh, as a manager uh, i don't know if he has a guy in his uh in his bullpen who can move around like andrew miller but if he did he'd probably be very open to that uh, they actually mm-hmm. might in uh brad hand although uh, we'll see if brad hand regresses after a career season but they, they have some interesting pieces in the bullpen i think he's not afraid to uh use them uh whenever and wherever in a game so i think uh, you're looking at a very uh analytically uh minded uh manager who uh isn't afraid to do something less conventional. And I think evolution-wise, maybe uh, he's just learned to trust his his coaching staff a little more. Being a first-year guy, you kind of want to come in and make your mark. But uh, I think now there's more of that trust, so maybe you'll see him. more of those uh, decisions kind of play out throughout the season
0: all right well we are subjecting all of our preview podcast guests to the indignity of making a win total <laughs> prediction would you mind giving us a, a pre-pitchers and catchers estimate for how many wins you think the padres will end up with this year
3: let see they won 60 uh 68 games last season i believe 68 right. games i think uh, mm-hmm. i'll go right around maybe uh 60, 67, 66. I think the the position players will be pretty good. The pitching is going to be shaky all year long. Add that together, and you have one or two fewer wins than last year. (laughs) An
0: exciting outlook. (laughs) 2017 Padres baseball. (laughs) One or two fewer wins than last year. All right. Well, thank you for uh, coming on, and everyone can find Dennis. On Twitter at S-D-U-T, Dennis Lynn, and you can find his writing in the San Diego Union Tribune. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, guys. All right. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already done so, Eric Schick, Jared Levin, Peter Seltzer, Noah Way, and Patrick Morris. Thank you. I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. It was a good one. I think no Jerry DiPoto this week, but we talked to former White House Press Secretary Josh Ernest, as well as reliever Craig Breslow who just used data to reinvent himself this winter, you can find that on the Ringer MLB show feed. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes, and you can reach me and Jeff via email at podcast at or by messaging us through Patreon. We will talk to you soon. We're on our way to relieve you of your troubles or
1: anything you've got or anything
0: we're on our way, and if you have no trouble, we'll see you get along. We'll see you get along.